your Bibles, if you turn to the final chapter of the book of Joshua, Joshua 24. This last chapter to this great book, let me read verse 1 actually. Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and summoned the elders, the heads, the judges, and the officers of Israel, and they presented themselves before God. So Joshua closes with Israel standing at Shechem. All the various elders and judges and leaders of Israel are all participating in this third and final assembly of God's people that closes the book of Joshua. It's a solemn occasion. They are about to hear God's word. It's also a historic and sacred moment. The seed of Abraham are standing in Abraham's place. And we'll look at this final text tonight in three sections, really the review of covenant history, which is verses 2 to 13. The demand for covenant commitment in verses 14 to 24. And then the wonder, the beauty of covenant worship in verses 25 to 28. And then the final closing words of verses 29 to 33 that keeps us aware of where Israel is. What becomes apparent at the end of the book of Joshua is not only God's gracious commitment to and desire for His people to be in covenant with Him, but also the reality of the fact that without some massive miracle on God's part, people, the people will never choose to remain in covenant with God. We close Joshua with the wonder of God's love for His people, their failure to respond faithfully as they should, and this lingering whisper that's always in the Old Testament of the fact that unless God steps in and keeps this covenant for them and for us, They would never and we will never remain His people. It is not our intention to be faithful that will save us. But God's gracious commitment to us in spite of our faithlessness for the sake of Christ that will save us. Let me pray and we'll look at this passage together. Father, I thank You for Your Word. I thank You for its power and sufficiency for Your people at all times and every place. Lord, I pray that You would cause us to receive this Word from You exactly as we need to, to hear precisely what we need to hear. That our faith might be increased, our joy would be full, our hope would be sure in Your grace, Your mercy shown to us once and for all in Your Son, Jesus Christ. We ask and pray this in His name. Amen. Beginning in verse 2 then. And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. I gave him Isaac. And to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau, and I gave Esau the hill country of Seir to possess. But Jacob and his children went down to Egypt. And I sent Moses and Aaron, and I plagued Egypt with what I did in the midst of it, and afterward I brought you out. Then I brought your fathers out of Egypt, and you came to the sea. And the Egyptians pursued your fathers with chariots and horsemen to the Red Sea. And when they cried to the Lord, he put darkness between you and the Egyptians and made the sea come upon them and cover them. And your eyes saw what I did in Egypt. And you lived in the wilderness a long time. Then I brought you to the land of the Amorites who lived on the other side of the Jordan. They fought with you and I gave them into your hand. And you took possession of their land and I destroyed them before you. Then Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, arose and fought against Israel. And he sent and invited Balaam, the son of Beor, to curse you. But I would not listen to Balaam. 
Indeed, he blessed you, so I delivered you out of his hand. And you went over the Jordan and came to Jericho, and the leaders of Jericho fought against you, and also the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And I gave them into your hand, and I sent the hornet before you, which drove them out before you, the two kings of the Amorites. It was not by your sword or by your bow. I gave you a land on which you had not labored, and cities that you had not built, and you dwell in them. You eat the fruit of vineyards and olive orchards, orchards that you did not plant. So here in verses 2 through 13, Joshua reviews the history of Israel so far, or of God's covenant so far, with Israel. His survey makes special focus on the crisis points, if you will, in Israel's history and on the threats to their welfare, all of which were met by God's gracious intervention. But we need to remember something. None of this ever should have happened. Only the grace and power of God can explain why there even was in Israel to stand on the ground at Shechem and listen to Joshua at all. So Joshua recounts this story of God's grace, and it it begins to look like a historical prologue to other ancient trees. And what a prologue God has created. Covenant history begins with the surprising grace of God. Look at the second part of verse 2 again. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. Long ago, your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates. Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. Abraham was as immersed in the worship of pagan gods as everyone else in his family and culture was. He wasn't like the good one out of his family that was seeking God. He was a pagan just like they were. He hadn't He was as guilty and godless as Terah and Nahor were. He was just another one of them. Abraham hadn't always been a man of faith, but he had always been an idolater. We only tend to remember the positive things about people once they get cleaned up, right? The the better part of their stories. But grace really is amazing. It's something to sing about. Abraham didn't need a little push to correct some difficult things in his life. He was willfully, happily serving other gods living his life as a pagan. But then I took your father Abraham. In other words, God said, God did. That's where it actually started for Abraham, being the righteous man of faith we know him as, God's gracious choice of him. Unexpected, unimaginable, unexplainable grace. Abraham rose out of the swamp of pagan idolatry because God reached down and took him out of it. He didn't come to any conclusions on his own about his religion and change his mind. He was drawn out By the hand of God. That there is a people of God at all then. Hangs on the single thread of God's good pleasure and grace. Which for no apparent reason. Found and took hold of our father Abraham. The pagan sinner. A survey of God's surprising grace in covenant history. Also shows us. The gradual way or gradual pace with which God works. Right, It starts with amazing grace. And then God works at a very gradual pace. In this recounting Abraham uh, still speaking of Abraham Joshua continues in the second part of verse 3 3 when God says that he made his offspring many I gave him Isaac now look at that again I made his offspring many I gave him Isaac I multiplied his offspring I gave him one child one times one is one right and on top of that Genesis tells us that it took 25 years just to get Isaac 
Then we keep reading in verse 4 that to Isaac, God also gave Jacob and Esau. Now, that doesn't look much better. God multiplied Abraham's seed by doing what? Giving him two grandsons. And that was after 27 years of having no child for Isaac and Rebekah. In other words, beloved, God is not in a hurry. And that is very comforting. Even though it's often frustrating because He doesn't need to be in a hurry. Right? Nothing is threatening to God. He has nothing pressing in on Him that would make Him need to get into a rush for us. He's so sovereign, so in control, so faithful to His Word, so certain that He'll bring it about that He can take as much time as He needs to bring about what he says he will do. God did multiply Abraham's seed. The proof is standing here. But he did it slowly. He always does what he promises, but it's often so gradual that we can miss how faithful God actually is. It would help our faith so much if we would fix our eyes more on the fact of God's faithfulness than the degree or the speed of it. Right? We can lose sight so quickly of all that God has done if we demand too much too soon. Next, we encounter the mystifying ways of God in covenant history. Look down at the second part of verse 4. And I gave Esau the hill country of Seir to possess, but Jacob and his children went down to Egypt. Now, why is that? Why did Esau and his family, the non-covenant line, get their inheritance, while the covenant family, Jacob and his line, does not receive theirs? In fact, they go to Egypt where eventually they end up enslaved. Why do the covenant people experience hardship and slavery while the non-covenant family get their reward? Why is it so often in this world that God's chosen ones, His children, experience the affliction of this world while others that hate Him and think nothing of Him get everything they're looking to get, get everything they want, it seems. Beloved, Scripture recognizes this mystery and doesn't hide from it. God's people so often have to wait, and usually in the midst of great trouble for God's promised blessing. The fact that Scripture is so candid about this is, again, very comforting. God isn't ashamed of this. He doesn't try to hide it. He doesn't try to pretend it's not true. Hebrews 11, 32-38. That's a great example of how upfront God is about all of this. If you remember that section of Scripture, the author of Hebrews makes no bones about the amazing benefits God's people have received. They've conquered kingdoms, they've shut lions' mouths, etc. But it goes on to say just as clearly of the faithful that some were tortured. Some faced mockery and flogging. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were put to death by the sword. They went about in animal skins. They were destitute and persecuted and mistreated, etc. Both of these sides of life will be experienced in the life of faith. And the Bible never pretends or promises otherwise. False teachers do all the time to the peril of themselves and their sheep. But God does not. God doesn't promise easy, rosy, smooth. Not at all. Neither Scripture nor God try to gloss over this. That suffering and mistreatment are as much a part of the Christian life as conquering kingdoms and muzzling lions is. This reality comes up that this is true, that this is a part of it, is here, even in this overall survey of God's goodness to Israel. God doesn't conveniently leave those things out. He puts them there. 
Esau received his possession. Jacob and his family, they went down to Egypt and it was going to take a very long time. That's a part of their story that has brought them to this point. There's no use kicking back at the fact that it is this way when in really, in reality, it ought to lead us to more adoration of our God. Why? Why? Why would that be? Because when God recounts the story of His grace on us, He doesn't leave out the rough spots. He doesn't gloss over the difficulties, and we can trust a God like that. He is honest and straightforward with us. Now, we don't want the darkness. We don't want the difficult times and the suffering. But we do have a God that can be trusted in those times. And for that, we are thankful. Then a substantial section of this historical prologue also labors to show us the manifest power of this God. Joshua outlines three major displays. of the I'm going to sneeze. Am I? Nope. Okay. All right. Sorry. That's new for, I don't know that I've ever sneezed in a sermon. That's anyway, Joshua outlines three major displays here of that power. Their deliverance from Egypt in verses five through seven, their conquest east of the Jordan river in verse eight, and then their conquest west of the Jordan in verses 11 and 12. The main thing God wants to impress on his people by doing that is that the power to perform all this that has gotten into this place has come exclusively from God. That's summed up at the end of verse 12. It was not by your sword or by your bow. So what, what do you mean? We swung the swords. We shot the arrows. But it is God's work through us. See, God is doing that through us. It's not our own fruit. It's not synergy. Right? It's not us contributing something and God working with it. It's the work of God when we are doing works. This is the exact same insight we need to have into our own righteousness as believers. Beloved, don't track what you're doing. And I know that seems counterintuitive, but in other words, don't count how many arrows you've shot in your life. Live for the Lord. Don't count how many times, how many foes you've defeated. Instead, think of those things as all the times that God has been at work in you. That God has been at work to do what He calls you to do. We aren't meeting God halfway. His power is at work within us apparently to make us do what He wants us to do. So much so that He can take all the credit for it and not be wrong or dishonest. If the truth of the matter was that we meet God halfway and we contribute something, it wouldn't read like this. It would be worded differently, and it isn't. Back in verses 6 and 7, which is just really a concentrated version of Exodus 14, it's obvious that the Lord is 100% responsible for their rescue at the Red Sea. Exodus 14 stressed the helplessness of Israel to rescue themselves. It's really what the chapter is about, but it's also says that God himself put them in that position of helplessness. That's how they ended up where they were. He wanted them to know who was responsible for their deliverance. So he deliberately placed Israel where they were sitting ducks for a furious, vindictive Pharaoh. They were hemmed in and totally helpless as the Egyptian military machine rolled in behind them. Why does God operate that way? Apparently, we have to be made helpless. We have to be forced into total weakness, total desperation, in order to see this or we won't see it. 
it's more of God's grace on us that He pushes us into the corner where the only thing we can do is cry out to Him for salvation, for help, for deliverance. That's His grace on us. He's trying to keep us from believing in ourselves. We have to be weaned off of this like little children. What's natural to us is that, Lord, I can help. No, 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 we can't. We need a full deliverance. We need taken over. We need rescue. God also speaks here of His faithful protection in all that. He, he refers to the Balaam episode in verses 9 and 10 from Numbers 22 to 24, one of the strangest stories in the whole Bible. Israel had arrived at the plains of Moab in their journey. They were ready to enter Canaan. That's when King Balak hired Balaam, this diviner, sorcerer, to pronounce a curse against them. Right? If, if curses didn't have power, they wouldn't have used them. So the enemy, the demons, the demonic, however you want to think of it, they were very much at work in these days. But it's made clear to Balaam that he could actually only do what God allowed or directed, like we saw this morning with Christ and the demons. They can only do what he says once he says it. God even gave this diviner extra studying lessons, if you will, in that fact, on his journey to Moab through a talking donkey. God literally opened the mouth of a donkey to get Balaam's attention that he was actually up against God. And God eventually opened his eyes so that he saw it was God stopping him. And in reality, he's about an inch away from being killed by an angel's sword. But this donkey keeps rearing back and won't let him go. He wanted to curse Israel. That's what he wanted to do. He wanted to get paid and he couldn't do it. In fact, God would make him speak only what God wanted him to say. He could only speak God's will, which was blessing for Israel, not a curse. And the rest is history. So Joshua preaches to Israel to remember the faithful protection of God. How he shielded you from Balaam and Balak's evil purposes. And beloved, the exact same logic applies to you and I tonight. There are always Balaam's and Balak's scheming against God's people in this world. But the protection and the promise of God remain unchanging. In Matthew 16, 18, Jesus promised to build his church. And what he says there, he implies very explicitly, if you will, that the gates of hell will want to destroy it. They just won't be able to. If, if we only knew, wouldn't it be interesting, all the times God has protected us, kept us from things when we weren't even aware of it. So much of our doubt would go away, I would imagine. Maybe not, but you would think. This story of amazing grace also includes the continuous provision of God. There's a hint of this in verse 7. And you lived in the wilderness a long time. Half of Exodus and all of Numbers, in fact, cover that long time in the wilderness. Just their survival then, just their survival from Egypt to Canaan was just one long miracle. Now Israel is enjoying God's abundant provision in the land of promise, right? Look at verse 13. I gave you a land on which you had not labored and cities that you had not built and you dwell in them. You eat the fruit of vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant. In other words, there's nothing automatic about what they have. It's all from the provision of God's amazing grace. If, if you look at verse 7 and verse 13 together, you see God's continuous provision for them in necessity and in abundance. It's always God providing it, whether it's manna in the wilderness, a supernatural thing, 
or vineyards in Canaan, a very natural thing from the earth. It is food and shelter from God's hand for God's people that he provides and gives to them. Every time we sit down at a table to eat, God has provided it for us every single time. Even though it might have been grown on or was grown on a farm or an animal lived on a farm and it made its way through a trucker to us or on a train or whatever it was. It's all God providing it. We, there's never a time when we're like, God didn't, God is not responsible for what I have. God isn't responsible for the good that I'm experiencing. God isn't the one providing everything I have. That's always the case for us. Always. This review of covenant history here is the story of God's grace. This text makes claims that are meant to tug at our hearts. That is, pierce our doubts, even today. Even today, the story of God's faithfulness and grace would eventually include the act of His own sacrifice for us in the person of His Son, Jesus Christ. That's how far God will go. You and I are not bought with perishable things, but with the imperishable blood of Jesus Christ. Now comes the second part of Joshua's message. We pick it up in verse 14. We'll read down through 24. Now therefore, fear the Lord and serve Him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Then the people answered, far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For it is the Lord our God who brought us and our fathers up from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery and who did those great signs in our sight and preserved us in all the way that we went and among all the peoples through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out before us all the peoples, the Amorites who lived in the land. Therefore, we also will serve the Lord, for he is our God. But Joshua said to the people, you are not able to serve the Lord. That's, we'll come back, that, that's a, we'll come back to that. For he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. And the people said to Joshua, no, but we will serve the Lord. Then Joshua said to the people, you are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen the Lord to serve him. And they said, we are witnesses. He said, then put away the foreign gods that are among you. They're already doing it. And incline your heart to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, the Lord our God, we will serve in his voice. We will obey. We promise, honest, we will do it. This is the second part of Joshua's message. The demand for covenant commitment. He now presses the demand that they be faithful to this covenant God has made with them. There are four statements from Joshua here in these verses and four responses by Israel. What kind of commitment does this covenant call for, right? If God has acted like this, what kind of commitment on our part does it call for? First and foremost, a logical one. In the first part of verse 14, now therefore, now therefore, fear the Lord and serve Him in sincerity and in faithfulness. The word now places the response that is demanded in light of the grace that has been displayed in verses 2 through 13. Again, faithfulness to God is really just the natural, the the obvious response to God's goodness. Why wouldn't you be faithful to a God who has been so graciously faithful to you? Morally speaking, 
Yes, of course. But also, logically speaking, who else would you want to serve? Why wouldn't you serve Him? It's the only reasonable response to the overwhelming waves of God's mercy. As New Testament believers, we read the New Testament and find this same thing. We stand in the same position in light of God's mercies in Romans 12.1, for example. Right? What makes sense in light of such great mercy that we read in Romans 1 through 11, but to offer our whole lives to God as living sacrifices? What else would make sense? Right? Romans 12 comes in to say, employ this mercy as the fuel for a life lived towards God. Joshua also demands an exclusive commitment from Israel in verses 14 and 15 and verse 23. The word serve here appears seven times in those two verses, it appears 18 times overall in chapter 24. There's no doubt then what Joshua is after here. Israel must decide whose slaves they will be. Whom will they serve? Who will be their master? Again, hear the logic of God's faithfulness there. Now, why would you want anyone but this gracious and merciful and faithful God to be your master? And Joshua does something very strange here that we might not catch on a casual glance. That famous choose this day whom you will serve line, that's a call to choose between two pagan sets of gods. Right? They're going to serve somebody. And if not God, who will it be? Will it be the ancient Mesopotamian gods Abraham and his people worship? Will it be these contemporary Amorite gods the Canaanites worship? In other words, here's the thing. Worship is unavoidable for human beings. Unavoidable. Whatever we serve, whatever we pledge our allegiance to, that is what we worship, thus saith the Lord. Why, why don't we want to hear that? We, we have to stop trying to define what worship is. And when God tells us what worship is, it's what you serve. It's what you're faithful to. It's what you're loyal to. To whom or what are you loyal to whom or what, whom do you serve? That is who or what you worship, God would say. See, we've, we've parsed it out. God would say, no, what are you loyal to? What do you give yourself to? Unquestionably. Joshua asks them who their God will be. Because notice, not making a choice is impossible. What is Joshua doing here? Is he seriously telling them they need to choose between two pagan options? How would that be a choice? That's exactly his point here, isn't it? He says, serve God, but if you won't, choose which worthless fake deity you'll serve then, if you won't serve the one true living God that has been faithful to you. Neutrality is impossible for a human being. We, we have to know this about ourselves. You, you, you and I do not have the capacity to not worship something we're loyal to. God help us. That's, that's scripture. We are worshipers. We serve what we worship with our whole lives. Joshua says, if you reject God to serve the gods of this world, you're a fool. That's what he's saying to them. Why would you do something so stupid? He wants to shock them into being God's servants forever. Here, a shock treatment is the way he's going to preach the word. Sometimes that's required. In any case, no matter what Israel does, and by the way, they... They're already serving other gods, and they're going to choose to serve other gods. 
Joshua has taken his stand, though, in verse 15, right? But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Joshua is pushing Israel into the only option there is. It's an either-or commitment. God or the world. And I think Christians today think we, we, we've done that, but we've not made such a clear choice. Right? We, that, that means something. That would look like something if that's the choice we had actually made. We still worship the gods of this world alongside our God. But we, we think that we're doing something else. That That's not what it is. And so we, we all the time are breaking that first commandment. But no, you, you can have other gods before him. Which again, it's not a pecking order. That's not what he means with before there. He means in my presence, in front of my face. I don't want any other gods. I don't want to see you with any other gods. So don't try to mix. There's no syncretism here. There's no polytheism. It's me or it's them. There's no, you can't bring anybody else in here. Like it's, it's, it's fine if you have a lot of things you're loyal to and you worship as long as God is the main one. No, it's not. It's all or nothing with God. They tried that. Israel is the example of what will happen if we convince ourselves we can make all these choices. We don't have the capacity for that. We, we don't have the capacity for this. You're going to see that blatantly said in just a moment. Israel has to give themselves to God completely or not at all. Whose slaves will they be? Because all human beings will be slaves to what they worship and serve. Will it be this gracious covenant God or will it be the myriad of pagan worthless deities and idols? What will it be? He says you have to make a choice, a conscious choice. Will we be the slaves of the worlds or the merciful, gracious, faithful, loving, never failing God? Right? What is it that makes the most sense? He says here. Now, you could hardly ask for a better response than the one he gets in verses 16 through 18. Then the people answered, far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. Remember, they're already doing it. So they don't even see it. Because he has to say, then put the foreign gods away then. Why would they say that when they're already doing it? Because they don't think that's what they're doing. They've convinced themselves we can, we can bring in other gods as long as this God is the main God. He's the one we worship. We just kind of work with these other ones. No. No. Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For it is the Lord our God who brought us and our fathers up from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery and who did those great signs in our sight and preserved us in all the way that we went and among all the peoples through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out before us all the peoples, the Amorites who lived in the land. Therefore, we also will serve the Lord for he is our God. They add their us too, us too, to Joshua's statement in verse 15. Oh, yes, us too. Absolutely. But then Joshua does something so crazy that if he were a preacher, you'd fire him. You'd fire him for being so pessimistic. His response to their, we will, is, well, you can't. In verse 19. We will. No, you won't. Stop lying. God and the Scriptures have zero time for our good intentions and grandiose decisions. God has no time for it. We are amiss when we respond to commands like that. We are wrong when our response to a command is, I will do that. You can count on me. 
verse 19. But Joshua said to the people, you are not able to serve the Lord for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you desert this God, in fact, he goes on to say, he will consume you in verse 20. In other words, that's great. Don't take what you just said lightly. Right? This promise that you're making, you better hold to it. Do you realize what serving this God means? This God is holy and jealous. Not like an insecure boyfriend or girlfriend, but because he knows that he alone is worthy of everything you are and everything you have. Every ounce and fiber of what you would call worship and service, it must be given to him or you are unworthy and you will be destroyed and consumed by him. Right? Such emotional commitments like the ones we see there, they don't actually come from a place of worship or devotion. They come from a place of hilariously blind self-confidence. When we hear what the Lord requires, we should be devastated by it. And realize that though it's true that we must listen to and obey Him and give Him our entire lives, we simply cannot. You are not able to serve the Lord. And if you say in your mind, well, now we are, beloved, He has not changed. We need to hear this word as beneficial to us. Like this is a good thing to hear. Because what does God do in our inability and desperation? He intervenes. He has power. He saves. He delivers. Jesus picks up this level of demand when he speaks in Luke 14. As the crowds are doing what? The crowds around him are increasing. He's getting numbers. That's the only visible sign of success, apparently, in Christianity. If you're big, you're doing well. If you're small, you're not. And why would we ever think any different, right? What does Jesus do when the crowds are getting really big? What does he do? He thins the herd because he knows what is in man. As the crowds around him are increasing and everybody wanted to follow him, or at least that's what they said, he says, you know what? Count the cost of following me. And I think Jesus is doing the same thing Joshua is doing here. It's, it's much more important to realize that we cannot do what God requires than it is to be confident in ourselves that we will at least try. It's just, it's, it's, we might mean well, but we can't do well enough. Don't try. Beloved, kneel down, repent, ask for mercy. Lord, I cannot do what you have commanded me to do. Have mercy on me. Help me. Empower me. Do what you what you command, do it. I'm holding swords and, and bows and arrows. I, I need you to shoot them. I need you to swing them. Help me. Help me. Not, oh yeah, all right, let's do it. Let's go. Right? That's, that's most Christian books in the Christian bookstore. You can do it, man. And you read the Bible. Like, no, no, you can't. No, we can't. One of the best things we can do for ourselves as Christians is to stop believing in ourselves and begin to question our own expressions of commitment because God has not changed. He's still holy. He's still jealous. He's no less holy or less jealous for His own glory now that Christ has come. 
what Jesus has done is give to God the devotion of which he's worthy. And God has imputed that to us by grace through faith as a declaration of what he considers to be true about you and I. So that we're not cut off because we are continually unable to meet the mark. We, we just we aren't doing enough. We aren't doing what we're commanded to do. The question is, when we hear that is, OK, then what am I going to do to fix that? Am I going to admit that it's not going to change and I need a savior, even as a Christian? Or am I going to say, I will do this? No, we won't. We are currently worshiping all kinds of gods. All of us are. We are told here that we must serve God and that we cannot serve God. So what do we hear? Do we hear that as what it is? Do we hear the law there? Because that's the law. We can't act like it's okay to just read right over that. Let it get into our bones so that we stay aware of our need for the righteousness of Christ and the gift of faith. And then in the third section here, Joshua considers the wonder, the beauty of this covenant religion or worship. In verse 25 here. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and put in place statutes and rules for them at Shechem. And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God. And he took a large stone and set it up there under the terebinth that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. And Joshua said to all the people, behold, this stone shall be a witness against us. For it has heard all the words of the Lord that he spoke to us. Therefore, it shall be a witness against you, lest you deal falsely with your God. So Joshua sent the people away, every man to his own inheritance. So in one sense, there's really no wonder or beauty per se at all. In other words, the verses don't really contain anything new about covenant or treaty ratification, right? What it means to be in covenant with someone. There was the customary sacrifice Joshua made, that is, he cut a covenant with the people that day. There was a written document. Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God in verse 26. There's a silent witness in verses 26 and 27, a huge stone. In ancient pagan treaties, their gods were all summoned as witnesses to the signing of a covenant. Biblical religion drastically reduces the witnesses to a rock, to nature. Heaven, earth, mountains, and stones even will testify to the fidelity of God's word. The wonder element here is in the location Shechem. More specifically, this happens by the sanctuary of the Lord in Shechem, verse 26. Now, if we let our minds go all the way back to Genesis 12, 6 and 7, we remember that it was at Shechem that God promised Abram to your seed, I will give all this land. And now, some 600 years or so later, here they are. Abraham's seed, according to the flesh, at the promised place of Shechem, having the land. No failing words. God does not lie, no matter how long it takes. But of course, the real wonder of covenant religion, again, is how there is any covenant at all. For Joshua to take the lead in renewing the covenant means there was a covenant to renew. God had chosen these people to be his own. The idea of a God who cut a covenant with people A God cutting a covenant with people, that was unheard of in those days from other religions and cultures who have no record of any such thing. A God would not condescend to a human being to make a covenant with them. 
But this is a special feature of the religion of Israel from those days, a God who enters into covenant with people. There were treaties and covenants in the ancient world between kings and vassals, between equals. But a God who makes and keeps promises to people? Where do we hear of a God who bounds himself by covenant to a people only in Israel? Who is a God like him? And after these things, in verse 29, Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died, being 110 years old. And they buried him in his own inheritance in Timnath-Serah, which is in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gaash. Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua and had known all the work that the Lord had or did for Israel. It's all very good news until you get to the next book of the Bible in Judges 1. As for the bones of Joseph, which the people of Israel brought up from Egypt, they buried them at Shechem in the piece of land that Jacob bought from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, for a hundred pieces of money. It became an inheritance of the descendants of Joseph. And Eliezer, the son of Aaron, died. And they buried him at Gebeah, the town of Phinehas, his son, which had been given him in the hill country of Ephraim. Beloved, our God has always desired to have a relationship, to be in a relationship with the people he's created. But how can this be? When we broke the terms, when we sinned against him in rebellion, he went to work to save us and to renew us and rather than completely destroy us. And he put his own word, his own integrity on the line in securing our salvation. And what the Bible teaches us is that no word this God speaks ever falls short. It never fails. No, they're not going to keep it. They're going to lose it. But God didn't fall short in anything. God did exactly what He promised to do. Why is He like that to us? Praise His name that He's like that to us. Because look, we do have good intentions. Especially as believers. If the Spirit isn't in us, causing us to desire to obey God, we need to be really concerned. If we have no desire whatsoever to please the Lord and honor Him and glorify Him and worship Him, something is wrong. But for Christians, that desire is there. Why can't we live up to it? Why are we always falling short? And what is God going to do if He's a holy and jealous God? We want to worship Him and be as thankful as we should and as joyful as we should and as righteous as we should, but we fail. What does God do? When we fail, what does God do since we are failures at this? The covenant God whose word never fails reacts not with destruction, but with grace. Why does God keep His promises to us? Why does He keep being gracious? Beloved, He loves us. And He doesn't lie. He loves us. And He doesn't lie. And as he says in Deuteronomy to the people of Israel, I love you because I love you. Right? Why do you love us? Because I love you. Not because we've earned it. It's all him. It's all from him. He's doing it all. And a God who loves because of him and not because of us, he can be trusted forever to keep all of his promises. God's word to you and for you never fails and will never 